Welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm Richard Gottlieber. And I'm Brad Garropy. And this week, we're bringing on another guest to the show. I want to welcome James Perkins to the show. He's a content creator at heart. He's a developer advocate at Tina CMS, but in his free time, he runs a YouTube channel, a Twitch stream, a podcast called Developers Hangout. But most importantly, he just launched a SaaS product called Roll Your Tweet that takes your tweet threads and turns them into blog posts. And I know he has a soapbox to stand on for this. <laughs> um, welcome to the show, James. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I do have a giant soapbox to stand on and I will die on the hill. Let's start there. <laughs> what's, what's your position on tweet threads? I hate them. They're the, they are the worst thing that's ever been invented in the world and people should stop using them. Except from the people that want to use my product, then you guys can still use threads. Everyone else just stop using them. I just find them to be, you know, sort of lacklustered at best. Like people will miss context or they'll just remove whole ideas out because they're like, it doesn't fit in 280 characters. And then it doesn't, doesn't flow so well. And people aren't going to click on the next one if I include this detail. And then you end up with people not learning what they should be or taking away something from a thread that they shouldn't. Yeah. yeah, I always thought it was weird how like, because it's this this threaded thing, at any point in the thread, you can comment or retweet or, mm -hmm. right? So it, it almost gives you like a slice and dice approach to content, which I think, like you said, can kind of lead to misinterpretation or like just parts of it being taken out of context. And uh, there has been many times where I've received DMs from people telling me to stop gatekeeping because I tell people to turn their threads into blog posts. And this is where the idea for the SaaS came along. But before that, I was like, I would just retweet it and put, you know, I'll take 500 for a blog post or this should have been a blog post or, you know, <laughs> this is way more useful as a blog post. And then, yeah, people would DM me angrily about how I was gatekeeping people from creating content. And I'm like, how is that gatekeeping? Right? Like I'm, I don't quite connect those dots in my mind either. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I understand t making a Twitter thread is really easy, right? It's just, you, true. you don't have to put so much research into it. You don't have to do all that, but with a long form content is detailed. It has to be well worded. It really has to be the. American English or the Queen's English or whatever language that you're writing in. And that's a lot of pressure. And, and with Twitter threads, they disappear, right? Sooner or later, you're, you're in the ether and nobody will find your thread ever again, in theory. But with long form content, someone could find that piece of long form content in six months and be like, you're wrong. And then you've got that pressure of similar to YouTube. It's funny you mentioned Twitter going away. So I actually use a Lambda function that deletes my tweets after a month. And so they disappear. It's interesting that like, it, it'd be interesting to do this with long form content too. But I think part of the reason I wouldn't is because you put so much effort into it. But in our space, like, to be honest, anything that's probably over six months old in the tech space is probably wrong <laughs> to some degree. But yeah, I, so I understand why it's become exceedingly popular lately. In the last six months, it's really exploded. Threads are real cool and easy to make and that highly engaging content. It's propaganda from thread emoji, uh, big thread <laughs> emoji. But 
No, I definitely, I agree. It is super frustrating to be on Twitter. And this is something, so I use TweetBot yep. normally on my phone instead of the actual Twitter app. And I've been going back and forth lately to kind of compare. And on TweetBot, I don't run into this problem nearly as often, but on the Twitter app, yeah, you'll find where somebody has interacted with a thread and it'll just be like 13 slash something out of context and a comment. And then you're like, what is even going on here? And yep. so you have to start digging around to figure out what's going on. So I definitely, I don't know, I agree with the, the premise that you have there that's, they're not a great medium, especially on Twitter. It's kind of like abusing the platform, right? Like the idea was small, short content, and now we're just cramming in an entire blog post right. into multiple of those. And, and, yeah. and, and I remember, I remember when the UI first came out for threads and I would always get confused about if I was in a thread or a comment on a thread entry, I just, it was, I didn't get it. Yep. Uh, and I think it's still pretty complex to understand the nesting that goes on there with a visual interface. Yeah. And, and, and to put it in perspective, I had someone use the SAS at some point, probably will tweet. I don't know whether or not they pu published it because I don't track any of that. I only track that they've basically pulled a, a thread and it, it, the character count was over 2000 words. <laughs> oh man. So that's basically you're talking almost 10 tweets in a row that someone had converted into a blog post, which to me is like, what you just write a blog post. That's a good, that is a decent blog post at that point. And, uh, yeah. yeah. It was, it was insane. And I was like, okay, that seems fine, I guess. Like, cool. You'll use my platform. Great. But yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. But I think this is a content creator's dream, right? To, to come up with one idea or one piece of content and repurpose it in as many different ways as possible. So if a tweet thread, uh, can generate a blog post, you're, you're part of the way there from like having a content pipeline that can be reused. And next thing you know, the blog post gets turned into a YouTube video and so on and so forth. This is really great. It's an enabling tool. Yeah. And that was kind of the idea. I decided that I couldn't fight people and stop them from making threads, right? It's going to happen. Like I can't just comment on every thread and be like, you should have turned this into a blog post. I'm just the angry guy in the yard, right? Screaming at kids. So. I was just like, well, how can I help them and enable them to get to the point where it doesn't matter if you make a thread, like if your thread pops off and you're like, wow, people are really engaged, like people want to know about this. Let me turn it into long form content. And then people that don't use Twitter, but do use medium dev to hash node or my own blog posts, I can just post it there and people can read it. And then you've got best of both worlds and you get, yeah, what you say, like a content pipeline. Now you can draft up, you know, if you do 10 threads a month, that's 10 blog posts that you don't have to write. You can just click a button and boom, it's already there, ready to go. So taking a step back, is this the first like paid SaaS product that you've ever made, uh, like as a side project? Yeah, to completion. Yeah. Yep. Originally I started on Collabstream, which Brad, you probably remember, which has been sat in the sidelines in in a private GitHub repository, but 2022 is coming. So I'm, I'm going to try and revive it. Richard, you probably don't know what it was, but essentially I was tired of the way collaborations worked on like Twitch or podcast or YouTube or whatever. So I was building this platform that basically allowed you to do what we're doing here, which is we have a studio with three people in it, 
but it was more focused on screen sharing and how do we get a calendar together in one place? So if, for example, this podcast, you guys could have a calendar in that project and you could send it to someone, they could click, yep, okay, I want this date. And it would feed to your calendars and then you could click that link and it would bring you to the platform versus having to try and figure out Notion doc and here's the link and here's, it would all be in one place. That sounds cool. Yeah, it was just a lot of work and it was very scary for a first SaaS. So hence Royal your tweet kind of became the first one instead. <laughs> but yeah, my first paid SaaS product. That's awesome. And I think I'm on the same train. In my mind, I'm telling myself late 2021 or early 2022, I will build something that is paid that can generate revenue as software as a service. Like I, I think we all have the skills to do it right now, or at least the barrier to entry developers right now to do this is pretty low um and now i think it just means we can take our ideas and put them into practice so we we got the backstory like like really really well taken care of but the name did you do anything special to come up with the name i was thinking what do you call a twitter threat and then like how can i sort of do that and people in the industry they call them like that unrolled is essentially the the term is used for a thread. It's like, it's an unrolled. So I was like, well, I guess we can just, originally it was called roll up my tweet. That was the original name. And I was like, that's too wordy. Let's shorten that down. So roll your tweet became the name because basically you roll up the content into a blog post. So I'm just Googling this. I found a Verge article. It says how to unroll a Twitter thread. Yep. See? Interesting. Okay. So yeah. like you're saying the industry, meaning like, like people who yeah. use Twitter, people, yeah. like call this unrolling. Yeah. Yep. So I was like, well, I can use that and call it roll your tweet. Isn't there some sort of Twitter bot or something where you can comment yes. something about unroll mm -hmm. and it will, it will make it, it into a, you? it will basically make it into a readable, some sort of readable format for you. Um, okay. And tweet. I, so roll up and you like, you're, you're thinking like sushi, right? Yeah. Like that's yep. what the logo looks like. Yep. Yeah, Perfect. it's a sushi roll. Yep, exactly. That I did lots of market research, so much. I uh, went in such great detail. The domain name was available. I had a logo in mind and it rolled off the tongue. That was my market research. Did you design the logo yourself? No. Well, kind of, sort of. I had a logo in mind and it's actually like a super cheap Fiverr deal. Gotcha. So, so Fiverr actually offers the ability to use pre-generated assets to make logos. So you don't actually have to pay like somebody and then you have to wait two days and they bring it back to you. What they do is they have artists create a bunch of assets and then you can pay for it and it's instant and it gives you basically everything, uh, logo, social media, Instagram, YouTube, zoom backgrounds, transparent versions, dark versions, like everything. All in one thing. And it was like $25, I think was total cost. So how does this work? Like, so that means somebody else could have bought the same thing. So, right. Like it's not necessarily individualized. Yep. Technically. Um, but that was a risk I was willing to take because I was like, well, if it doesn't take off, like, I don't want to invest $300 into someone making me a logo. And then I've wasted $300, um, that could be spent elsewhere, but yeah, it was just a risk of willing to take. And if it becomes a thing that people will, there'll definitely be some changes I make, especially the, like the logo will stay the same, but it will be high quality, same idea. 
As you were starting this out, like it definitely sounds like you were kind of scratching your own itch with your wanting to take threads off of Twitter <laughs> and put them into long form. Did you do any like research as far as seeing if people would actually be interested in that other than yourself? Or were you just mostly solving your own problem and throwing it out there to see if other people wanted to solve that problem too. So it was a 50-50 mix here. It originally started as I'm making this and I'm mad about it. And I started it on a Twitch stream just randomly. I was like, I'm just going to build this thing. And so I started like hacking away and made like the first UI piece and was like, all right, yep, I can see this being a cool thing. And then I reached out to a few people that I know make threads and said, hey, like if I could automate your blog experience so that you could post on your blog from a thread, would you be interested? And they would be like, yeah, that would save me a bunch of time. I wouldn't have to like copy, either copy and paste my thread somewhere and then edit it afterwards. If I could do 90% of my work and then hit a button and it's done, then yes. So I did a small amount, but it wasn't like a huge marketplace. Okay. Looking at your, your app, do you, you mentioned like the stats that you kind of track. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of people editing the thread or do you even see, like check that to like, see how much like editing they do or if they edit, I'm just kind of curious, like if the input versus output, right. From your app, how varied that is. I intentionally don't track what people put in. So I can see them enter the editor mode, which is by default, everybody has to enter the editing mode, but I don't track the character count before and afterwards, or if any edits have been made. I basically don't okay. store any of the data that they, once they click the button and it's in the editor, that's just locally right there. And then if they leave the page, I just let them leave and I don't store any of it anywhere. So you mentioned that this kind of started as a, I don't know if this is putting too much emphasis on it here, but like, you know, a rage fueled hack on, mm -hmm. on Twitch. Uh, what tech stack did you start with? So the original tech, when I first was angrily about it. I use Next.js, which is what I use for basically my whole life. If, if I'm building an app for you, it's probably in Next.js at this point. And then Chakra UI for CSS components, because it's quick and easy and I can MVP really fast with it. But the actual tech stack that with most of the tech changed about, I want to say six times from inception to what it is today. And I can talk about why that happens and how we got to where we are um so yeah so i guess to just to kind of like set the stage how you recently just like officially launched this right mm -hmm. when did you start i started on august i want to say it was august 19th or something like that okay and i was done by september 19th it was exact it was it, no september 21st it was somewhere around there I was done in 32 days wow. from, okay, from awesome. start wow. to finish. And you changed tech stack six times. Yep. I, I want to hear this story. <laughs> so the original plan was I'm going to use Superbase that everyone talks about. It's so good. It's the most amazing tech stack. You got to use it. It's got databases and authentication and you can use socials and all these things. I was like, all right, fine. It's time to try it out. Like I'm, I'm good for it. I start using it. And it was deeply ingrained in the app. I was probably 10 days in at this point. And originally I'd done everything client side. So everything was CSR'd. And I was like, this seems really dumb. 
why am I working so hard to verify if someone's logged in? Are they actually logged in still? Has the token expired? All these kinds of things. So I was like, that's fine. I can just do it in SSR, like super basic supports SSR. Let's do it. And after about, I think it was a full day of debugging. I could not get SSR to work the way I wanted it to. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm stupid. Possible. Never used this tech stack before. Maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Read the docs, look at the guides, do it exactly how they described, wouldn't work. So I was like, all right, I'm done. Like this is a whole day of my life wasted away. Let's just tear it out. So I tear out all of that and think to myself, what can I use instead? So people that know me in the industry, clerk.dev, which is a Jamstack focused authentication provider. I hit them up and said, yo, I'm trying to build this SaaS. I want Twitter. Do you guys have it right now? And the founders were like, no, we don't, but we can prioritize it for you. So I was like, okay, great, cool. I'm like looking to launch in 30 days. So let me know where you're at. And <laughs> I was like, all right, I know how that product works. It's really easy to integrate. I can do it that way. So. I built out this authentication. You could, you're going to notice a theme here that authentication was the issue. So I built in their authentication and I just used username and password. And I was like, I'll just ask for Twitter a different way. Like I'll launch a Twitter authentication. We'll do it that way. I'll store it in a database. It will be fine. And then once they transition to have Twitter available, I'll just integrate that. And then we won't have to worry about this anymore. So the Twitter API is terrible. Fun fact, <laughs> if you've ever used it, it's probably yes. one of the worst APIs in the industry I've ever used. And version two is no better than version one. And version two has so many limitations that version one doesn't have that I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to build this with version one. So I built Clerk. I built the authentication for Twitter. Everything was working great. And I was like, this is working really well. Cool. Then I started to work on the editor, which basically pulls in all the threads and then dumps out all the text from the thread. And then you can edit okay. it, hit submit, and then download it or send it to wherever you want to send it. Well, with version one of the Twitter API, they don't support the full text of a thread. So they, they will give you the first Number one, the first original tweet will have all of the text available. Any subsequent piece of that thread will have the first insert amount of characters here, and then it's just an ellipses. And there's no way to get the full mm. text out of threads. Do you have like at least the ID of the subsequent tweets so that you can like chain those requests? Yes. But it becomes incredibly complex when you have 10 or 15 right. or 20 in a row. Right. So I was like, okay, guess I'm switching to V2 then. So I switched to V2 and I can't get authentication to work the way that I want and get the correct permissions. Cause there's two things that I want from the permissions. I only, I just need to read your tweets. That part's easy, but I also need your email address. And the reason I need your email address is if you're a subscriber and you subscribe to the paid service, I need to be able to link that to Stripe somehow 
from the database. And if I don't have that, it makes it very complicated. So that goes on for a while and I'm trying to figure it out and I just can't get it to work just the way I want it to. And it's, I'm getting more and more frustrated. So I hit up the clerk team and I'm like, Hey, is Twitter coming anytime soon? Cause if you guys can have it, that'd be great. They're like, Nope, sorry. We're like, we're working on some cool stuff with the version two version. API is going to be cool. We, we, we're not ready for it. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I start investigating other auth providers. I tried magic link from the team over there and whoever said that their ex like auth experience is good has never played around with a good auth experience it was terrible i integrated it in a demo app and i didn't even finish it i just closed and deleted it off my machine and, and after using clerk for so long and how well they've done authentication that their, their system just looks terrible so fast forward a bit further and I was like, all right, you know what? I can just use auth zero, I guess. Let's go back. They have a Next.js SDK now. I know somebody that at least works there. So if I have issues, I can hit them up and be like, hey, like, how do we do this? And I know they support Twitter and I know it works. Those kind of essential pieces. And I know I can get the email address. So I end up, and in case anybody's listening, auth zero is what I'm using now today. Auth zero was semi painful, but only for one reason. And that is because they don't provide the actual Twitter nickname by default, which sounds really strange, right? So like my Twitter handle is James underscore R underscore Perkins. They don't actually provide that by default. I don't know if it's a bug or if it's just been something that they just never have added. But they have this really cool thing where you, essentially you can create actions after the fact that someone's logged in to pipe in pieces that could be missing or something that you want to change. So you just write like a JavaScript function that says, hey, I want this. And they'll just pipe it in and you'll be able to get it out of the token they provide. So I hit up uh, James Quick and said, hey, like, how do I do this? Like, am I doing something wrong? And he was like, oh yeah, here's like an old thread, forum thread or something. Here's how you do it. And I was like, oh, okay. It's like this really easy function. I'll just add that, added that. And then I got all the pieces that I needed and it worked great with the V2 out of the gate. So at that point I was like, okay, I've picked an authentication provider. I'm not touching it ever again. Like this is going to be it. And then I had been using different databases just off the, you know, cusp. I tried Firebase but they're really expensive and they don't really work very well with Next.js, which Brad, I'm sure you've probably, I'm pretty sure you created videos on it, right? At yep, some point. Yep. Yeah. It's just a pain. I've done videos on it. It's not the easiest to work with. So I floated a different, few different databases around and I just ended up falling in with FaunaDB or Fauna as they're now known, who basically do transactional API calls. So you basically just say like, I don't know, create dot collection users dot and then whatever the data is and it just pushes it up and there's no you don't have to worry about load on the database you don't have to worry about keeping connections open you don't have to worry about any of that you could do like a million requests and they'll just handle it on their side so it's all scaled on their side versus on on your side keeping connections open so that's what i'm using for a tech stack so long story short i'm using next.js auth zero fauna and then 
I have some other things behind the scenes, like I'm using Stripe for payments and I'm using Semtex for logging. I think that's what they're called. Uh, is it Semtex? Hold on. If I type it, it'll come in because yeah. Oh, it's Sematext, S-E-M-A text. And it just like makes it easy to dump out logs from for sale. And, and then you can like browse them and, and, and spend some time in there if you're getting errors or really long Lambda functions, things like that. One of the things that I've always found was tough building SaaS apps is somehow taking that user information mm -hmm. and associating it with all of your other services. So I know that on your paid tier, mm -hmm. you offer uh, dev to hash node and medium yep. integrations. So how do you take the user's authentication from there and kind of save it to their profile so that they can use it in the future? Are you, do you have like a separate database where you store stuff about the user? Yeah. So to, to give you a peek behind the scenes, I have one database and it is only the user's database. I don't store anything other than that. That's all I have. All the logs are purged after seven days and I don't store anything else. So I only have a user's table and it's very manual right now. And the only reason it's manual, and this is not on me, this is pretty much, they're all, so Hashnode barely has an API and it barely works. Dev2 doesn't have OAuth currently. It's something that's in beta, I think right now, or alpha. And then Medium, as far as I can tell, they don't do, they basically have just like, here's an API key, put it somewhere and you can use it. So all three services right now are create an API key for me and just drop it in my settings and then save that. And I associate the client, the user ID to those stored encrypted keys. And I just basically I decrypt them on the server and then make the request for them. Gotcha. And then once OAuth is available, we'll start switching over to that. Like, I don't think Medium will ever have an OAuth. They, their API was probably the worst of the three to work with. And I, I made it on a whim because I was like, well, oh, people use Medium. Like, I guess I can build that API. The, the, what's good about the way my APIs work is regardless of how their API shape is, the shape that comes in is always the same. So building out new APIs takes seconds versus like the first one took probably an hour, but the, the subsequent ones that the shape is always the same coming in and the shape only changes slightly because it's blog form. Like there's not a lot of differences between the platforms, which made it really easy to, to push them out. We'll see how that goes with WordPress. Cause that's the next one on the list. Is, is there any risk of like the, those API keys expiring or, you know, the, the services cutting them off? Like it's probably something you might have to handle in the future. It's definitely a risk. I'm watching the OAuth stuff for all three platforms. Mm -hmm. If they happen to decide that like, yeah, we're not going to use API keys anymore. You've got to use this. That's fine. I'll be ahead of that. And yeah, of course it's a risk that I'm, I'm willing to bet on right now. And if someone's in my paid tier and then suddenly everything breaks, like they get support and the support's available, like they'll get a response within one day, guaranteed. Whether or not it's a fix or not, they will get a response. And I can see, I have alerting for everything. So one error is the threshold. So anything over one error, I get an email that's like, hey, by the way, something's broke. And over time that'll increase. Like obviously the threshold is pretty low right now. I've had it at one, but if that continues to crop up, then we'll start doing some serious, like 
scaling and stuff. Did you run everything off of uh, serverless functions? Yeah, everything is serverless. There's there, there is no server involved, and that's because well, you know, I'm in the Jamstack pretty much 24 seven. So like building on service functions make the most sense at the time. And so what like kind of alerting and monitoring services are you using for this kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, uh, so the Semitex people basically uh, run, they basically for their tier, like depending on what tier you purchase from them, it's basically DevOps for serverless. That's essentially how they look at it. So that I can do errors in lambdas or slow cold start, all, all the things that you could possibly need from a service function, I can basically pipe in there and they can alert me as time goes on. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And then I also saw you were using Crisp, I think it was called, for yeah. the chat integration. Yep. I was like, I I've never looked into how to do that. And I'm like, this one's really cool and really smooth and easy. And yep. it sounds like Crisp makes it pretty easy. And there's a free tier, which mm -hmm. I never thought there would be free tiers for chat apps like this. Yeah. So here's a quick download into why SASs are so popular is the cost to run them is basically non-existent. Yeah. I figured out that if one, if I got one paying customer at my current discounted $5 rate, I could run the business with 2,500 free users and wow. <laughs> not have to and not spend a dollar out of my own pocket and what like where would your costs come from right i, I assume yeah. it's either the database or the serverless function invocation yep and and that's the only costs i really honestly have there's some other costs involved that like i have like email like i have private email for for royal tweet and the domains and all those things but they're only yearly sure. costs and i don't really care about those but yeah, basically it would be serverless function runtimes and how much you can do. But like for sale, it's like a hundred gig or something ridiculous. Their free tier is just unreal. And then Fauna, their free tier is pretty, it's even better than it was when I started the project. So I think it was like five gig of storage. And now I think it's 25 gigs. So like, basically I'm the odds of me inserting that many users into the database is very slim. Like, and the amount you'll, of be, you'll be happy yeah. to pay for, for database yeah, exactly. at that point, right? Yeah. Like so if I ever hit that number, I will be like, here you go. Here's a fat check, <laughs> but it's very unlikely. Yeah. Running the, the running cost is really low. Like even Feedhive, do you know who Feedhive is? It's yeah, run yeah. by Simon. It's a pretty newish bootstrap startup. Like he talks about his costs at some point and like his cost is just it's basically non-existent with the amount of users that are paying for his service is basically non-existent. And like, that's pretty much how Royal Toot could be. Like I could have easily a few thousand free tier users and never have to really worry about costs. That is awesome. How did you then decide like the, the different tiers of free versus paid and pricing and yeah, that was kind of hard. So at that point, I was kind of, I basically looked around the market and saw what people were charging for like, ha for example, like what does Feedhive charge somebody for using their tweet service? Okay. They're charging, I think it's like $9 a month or something. $10 a month is their like cheapest tier, the creator tier. And I said, okay, if they can charge $10 to schedule a tweet, how much can I charge to essentially take that piece of content and put it on another platform. 
which is essentially the same idea. Basically, I'm scheduling your blog posts for you. And I, I looked around and basically every single scheduling piece of software out there was all around the same price. It was all about $10 a month. So I was like, okay, I'll do $10 a month. And if you buy a year subscription up front, I'll make it $100. So you'll get $20 off two months free. And then for the first 30 days, I'll make it $5 a month or $6 a month or $5 a month if you buy a whole year. It's technically what's on the pricing page, but if you go in the app, it's $5 a month and $50. It's the same price, but I was like, well, that doesn't look like good marketing. So that's why the price is different. And, and basically, and that's for the lifetime. So if you buy it now, that's the lifetime price. It will never, I'll never up the price of anyone that buys in the first 30 days of launch. And that was basically how I did it. I just went and looked at every single bootstrap startup and looked at all their pricing and said, $10 seems to be a decent number that everyone loves. That's how I got there. That's cool. So how is, when you launched it at this point, mm -hmm. how long ago? Uh, it's been a, I want to say it's a week. A week? Yeah, I think it's a so week. How, how's it been going? Good. Okay, I can give you some stats if you'd like. Do you like, yeah. guys like stats? Let's see. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm also curious, like, from the, from the James stats of... What's it done to your, your time since mm. it went live? Yeah, uh, we can talk about both of those things. It was just over, I launched a, a randomly, I think on a Friday, it was Friday the 8th. So is that a week ago? Is it Friday today? I don't know what day it is anymore. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. A, cool. it was right a week ago. Yeah, so it's exactly a week. So I've had 137 unique people enter the app one time. So at least made it into the editing experience at some point. And I've had 337 people actually just go to the marketing site and look at what I'm offering. Although the marketing site has changed since the launch. So I actually just did a bit of rebranding after some advice from a few people on Indie Hackers that were like, yeah, this is way too much. Like cut this down, make it short and snappy, um, do this, do that. And I did that. Um, so I went from two pages down to a single page and it's literally like you see like a headline tag with a hero kind of style that it's like features and then it's price and that's it. That's the whole site right now. So that has been what we're up to right now. So 137 people have at least tried the app at some point and then yeah, 260, no, 265 unique people have visited Royal Tweet at some point, the marketing site. And of that, I have had one person reach out to me for discount pricing. And, and that, that's been it. And I've sold one $5 so far in a week, which to me is like, cool. So $5, $5, one premium user. It's paying for itself now, right? Yeah, like... yeah, exactly. It's paying for itself now. I can, I can use that as marketing budget. And then time-wise talking about time, my time in general, since I've launched, I've spent less than an hour on the app. And some of that was just like tiny UI bug fixes that were annoying me, but I was like, if I don't, if I don't launch, I'll never launch was basically where I was at. And people didn't even notice. Like people were like, what are you talking about? What bug did you fix? And I was like, don't worry about it. It's, it's, and this it's, is, go ahead, Brad. This is awesome because that, that money is now coming in monthly, right? It's not a one and done thing. Like it's it, because this is a service, it's recurring income. And you know, now you have a couple options you can work to bring more users on and add more features and 
grow the user base here, or, you know, you let it grow it, it organically. And next thing you know, you pivot and you go make another one. And this is how you kind of start compounding, right? Putting your business ad on, you either, you know, work on the one idea or make more of, uh, more SASs to kind of bump your income like that. Yep. Yeah. So there's two really types of like indie hacking SAS builders out there. There's the, I'm all in on one SAS idea. Like this is going to, I have, this is it. Like I'm going to make a million, you know, annually from this or whatever. And then the other ones are micro SAS builders who build like five or six miniature micro SASs that don't do a whole lot, but bring a lot of value, make it $5 a month. It costs them probably $0 to maintain. And they get like, you know, $500 monthly recurring. And then they build another one. And then they build another one. And then they've got like a portfolio of 10 or 15 of these micro SASs that take zero maintenance. It's like, okay, I got to up dependencies. Okay. My app still works great. And a lot of these people that are building them aren't even coding. They're using no code to build them fast and they'll put them out. Like I just, it's incredible. Like what people do out there. So looking back, like what was the hardest part of building this? Was it the tech? Was it the marketing? What did you think was difficult? Except from the Twitter API, which is still horrendous. Apart from that, I think marketing and figuring out how, how like I, I know how to market for the most part. Like I market myself pretty much every day. I market Tina almost every day, my YouTube channel or Twitch, whatever. But it's very different when you're trying to market a application to people when they have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. Especially now, like a decade ago, it would have been much easier to acquire users because people had a lot of faith in what companies did with their data and things like that. So now it's very different, right? People are very skeptical. Like I've got to log in with my Twitter account. Like, what are you doing with my tweets? Or what are you doing with my profile? Or what are you doing with my, you know, because technically part of the Twitter API is you can scrape their profile and you can grab their profile information. So once you've logged in and authenticated one time, technically I could go and scrape every single person's profile, grab their email, if they've got their email or links or locations, all that stuff is easily available. So it's very hard to persuade people that like it's safe. Yeah, this is one thing. So I, I will say, when I went to sign up, the Twitter does Twitter has changed where they do a good job of saying, hey, mm -hmm. this could have access to. Yep. And like, to be honest, it's a little off-putting when it's like all your private lists, all of your DMs, all yeah. of these things, right? Just because you have to authenticate to like that level. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I wish that Twitter would give you as a developer more granular access to pieces. Yeah, so that right? was one of the hard things. It's either, it, it's almost all or nothing. Yeah. So it's like, hey, we can read all your tweets and do all these things, or we can do nothing. And that's and that's your only options. And it it kind of yeah. sucked. And I tried to keep mine to like the bare minimum to get what I needed, which essentially all I need is your profile and your email address. And the rest of it, I don't need any of it. I don't even actually read your tweets from your logged in account. I manually go out and use my own OAuth tokens to go and grab them from your own profile using your username. So once you've authenticated, I don't ever use your auth tokens ever. 
So just because of the way the API works and it's easier to do that than it is to try and have you. Otherwise, Twitter makes you re-authenticate almost every time. And the refresh token rate is like an hour. So like every time you logged into the app to build a new one, you'd have to log in. And then when you go to that, like you'd log in, I'd get your tweets. You'd click a button, you'd have to re-authenticate. And then I'd give you your thread. So it was very much just like a, basically Twitter, like we're doing our best, but we're making it more complicated mm. than it needs to be. I think one of the biggest challenges when I tried to build uh, Murphy, which was my first SaaS, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, was somehow hooking up the payment methodology with essentially my users table, right? So it's it's Stripe understanding how to use their webhooks after things happen. And it was only one-time payment for me. And then getting that into the users table, I eventually just dropped all that by putting a price tag on it in the app store because it was a PWA. However, you even went the harder way and you have, you know, recurring subscriptions. How was testing that? Does, does Stripe make that easy? Or, you know, how do you test what happens when a credit card no longer works or, you know, any number of things can happen? So Stripe gets a 10 out of 10 for developer experience from me. I'm going to chime in and say Stripe is, is amazing from the developer yeah. experience. Sorry to interrupt. No, no. Yes, it, it blows me away. So when I, I already knew about Stripe because I work for Plaid before I moved on. And so they have a deep coupling integration. Um, so I knew quite a bit about their DX. So what they do really well is webhook testing is done so well at Stripe. It's just so easy. So essentially what I did to make this as easy as possible for me was I created a webhook listener, which is just an API route that Stripe can send anything to. And I processed a subscription through the test API and then logged every single occurrence of what happened in a Stripe event and said, these five things happen every single time that someone does something with like adding a payment and then doing the subscription and then handling those first and then having another catch-all that said, okay, after all these 10 things or five things or six things are handled, what happens when someone cancels? And then handling those. So it basically, it becomes like a large, basically if else statement that's in a webhook handler that says like, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. And there's some things like people get scared with subscriptions. They're like, oh God, like what happens if someone cancels and then I don't know about it. And then they use my service for free forever. And I'm mad about it. Well, the webhooks are really good. One, two, Stripe has a feature that says like, if someone cancels, do you want to refund them immediately for the rent? Like let's say they subscribe for a month and they do 26 days. Do you want to refund them for the last four or five days? Or do you want them to run out to the end of the month? And if you use the run out to the end of the month, they actually send a webhook that says, somebody is canceling soon and it's when it happens which is like they click the cancel button and then one when it's one day out and then again when it cancels so basically you get like this thread of webhooks to remind you that like hey by the way this person is going to cancel like maybe you want to send them an email or maybe you want to set their account so they make it as easy as possible to handle that and there's a lot of services out there that you could use if you didn't want to use stripe 
directly. That's awesome. You could like, you could almost progressively enhance that where like, I don't want to implement that yet. I will literally do it manually. When I get a web hook from Stripe, uh, email me, you know, and then you're like, okay, now I want to invest the time into coding this. I will send a drip email to the person saying, Hey, you know, you're going to run an X amount of days. Do you want to sign up again? And then when it reaches the end, you run the code that says, okay, bye. Yep. You're done skis. And 100% right now, the cancellation through, through the platform is, is a manual process for me. So I actually gotcha. have, so only for everything else is automated. The only part that isn't is canceling the subscription. And that was because I was like, well, the odds of like a hundred people subscribing and canceling in the first 30 days is slim. And yep. if it does happen, I can do it myself. So I have a cron job that sends me an email. If anyone goes through this, uh, the cancellation one, so that I can reach out to them and find out like user feedback and be like, why did you cancel? Like what wasn't working for you? Like, what do you want to see as changes? Is there a way we can retain you? Those kinds of things. And then two, I can just manually go into the database and just turn subscribe from true to false and then hit save. So I've, I've heard about stuff like this, where it's like literally you, you invest your engineering just as far as the customer journey goes. So first you just build a landing page because that's all you got, you know, and then you build the app homepage and then, you know, you go down all these customer journeys and you actually don't implement any of the cancellation or goodbye type processes because it's engineering effort wasted at that point. Number one, you got to get a customer. And then number two, that customer has to decide to leave. So invest your resources wisely when you're doing stuff like this. And that, and and in most cases, people that pay for a premium SaaS are less likely to cancel unless they're going through budgetary reasons. Like unless they're right. like, oh, like I need this extra $5 a month. The odds you canceling a SaaS-based product or any kind of like even video as a service, like Netflix, Hulu, like the odds of you canceling are so slim unless you're under budgetary requirements. Like, oh, I need to save 20 bucks a month. Let me cancel my Hulu. So the odds are very slim. And even if someone does cancel, like, yeah, you're right. Like the whole point of deploying this now, it might not be a hundred percent, but people don't know what's happening behind the scenes. The whole subscription model could have been done manually by me. And I could have just been sat here waiting eagerly for someone to click that button. And then I could have been like, okay, cool, sweet. I know that it's this user. I can go look it up in auth zero and say, yep, this is the user. Find the email address, go to the database and press subscribed. If I really wanted to, but like, I didn't want yeah. to do that part in case it happens at three in the morning and I'm asleep. So, but the cancellation part. Disclaimer, subscriptions will occur within 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I could have done that and, and people probably wouldn't care. There would be zero to like the odds of people being upset about that is probably pretty slim. What about deciding between subscription versus one time? Was that a decision you spent a lot of time on or did you think it was straightforward? It was easy. I, my, my thought was like, if I'm going to produce this as a piece of software that you can use multiple times, why would anybody, why would I let you do a one-time fee? I thought about doing a lifetime subscription on launch and being like, Hey, if you pay $300, you can have access to the lifetime and thinking like, okay, yeah, I could probably make a few, you know, a few thousand dollars that way and then not ever have to worry. But I found that talking to other people that lifetime subscriptions only really work if it's a product that brings day-to-day -day value. So for example, something like, I don't know, like a notion template 
that does some cool stuff behind the scenes, like a lifetime subscription to that, that has updates, you're more likely to pay lifetime or streaming software. Uh, like if you had, you know, this platform offered a lifetime subscription, you guys are more likely to pay for it as a lifetime subscription than you are as a monthly subscription. Cause you're like, yeah, if I get, okay, we expect this podcast to run for five years and it's cheaper to buy a lifetime than yeah. it is to pay monthly or yearly, then why wouldn't I do that? And you know, that's the marketing ploy that people play with. So I like your faith in this, James. Oh, I, I have, have faith, re, man. We have to rebrand <laughs> Metaverse Dev Weekly, though. So yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I have faith that you guys will be around for a while. Another decision I wanted to drill into a bit is like how and where you released this. So mm -hmm. because I feel like this was released primary, primarily as a web application, mm -hmm. um, how do you balance that against mobile? What about people using the Twitter app on their phone? Did you do any kind of market research on where people would want to be doing this kind of work? So I made two assumptions that one, like writing long form content on a mobile device is horrendous. And two, I, uh, it, it does. So when I originally launched, it had no mobile support. It did have it, but it didn't work very well. Like uh, not even responsive design or, or what? No, it was responsive, but the markdown editor was not. Um, gotcha. So basically what happened was just that you just had these really two skinny columns and like you'd be <laughs> typing over here and it would appear over it and you'd be like, what does that say? I don't know. Um, so I launched with desktop support and then immediately put out a, what I would call mediocre mobile support. It, it works. I don't really particularly like it. There's some edits I need to make to make it a bit more, but. Yeah, my assumption is, is that not a lot of people want to do long format on a desk uh, on anything other than an iPad or a desktop device. Well, and I suppose if you have any kind of analytics on here, you probably know what device they're accessing it from and you can give like a breakdown, you know? Yeah, I could tell you right now that 67% of people have used their desktop and 4% of users have used their mobile device. And that might actually be me. And then the rest is on a tablet. Nice. So, and, and so this data, is this separate from Semitext? Mm -hmm. Semitext is just your serverless logging yep. and monitoring. Uh, this data is what Google I'm, analytics or I'm using plausible, which okay. is like another SAS that was built by a couple of guys in the EU and it's open source and it's privacy focused versus Google analytics. Basically all I can see is the source the medium, the campaigns, what pages you entered in, exited on, and maybe the country that you live in, and then the device. But the rest of the stuff, like with Google Analytics, you can drill down to like, this person was 17 years old, and the last six things they searched for was this. And you can see all of that in Google Analytics, and I didn't want that, which is why cookie disclaimers exist now. With Plausible, there's no cookie. Even if you go and use this in the EU, I don't have to provide a cookie disclaimer because we don't they don't do any of that um they don't store anything they don't do any of that stuff so i don't have to worry about any of that which makes it really does, easy for me does that have a cost associated with it it does have a cost but it's so low priced yeah six dollars for ten thousand page views a month okay and i prepaid a year so i paid sixty dollars for ten thousand page views and it's not based on sites so it's based on page views over as many sites as you need. 
So I have my own personal blog on there. I have both the web app and the separate marketing pages. Both of those are separate analytics. So I can see all of those on top of it. So basically any site that I own runs through this plausible app and it has cost me $60 uh, a year and I have not hit 10,000 views yet. That's cool. Yeah, I always, I always struggle with the, like we were talking about pricing and how much you can get for free, mm -hmm. but then that's kind of the double-edged sword, right? When you compare like Google Analytics, it's like yeah, what you're giving away because mm -hmm. it's free versus something like this where you can, you know, still know information about your users, yep. but not necessarily see everything about them, give them a little sense of security too. Yeah. And I, so. I tried to keep privacy a focus when I built it. I don't care what you're tweeting about or sending to platforms or downloading as Markdown. Like, I don't care. I mean, if you're using my platform for hate speech, sooner or later, somebody's going to tell me that like, hey, I saw this Twitter thread that turned into hate speech. And yeah, I have the right to terminate your account at any point. It's in the TOSs. So don't do that. But for the most part, like, I don't care. And, and I think it's, you know, I think if you're a small enough SaaS, you can build privacy first and then go from there. So yeah, I try and store as minimal amount of data as possible. That's very responsible of you. I'm sure everybody who uses <laughs> it will appreciate it. Put on your businessman hat, put on your indie hacker hat. Um, do you think you're going to build any more SaaS applications in the near future? Do you have any ideas for new SaaS applications? Yeah. So I have a couple of ideas rattling around that I'm thinking about. So I have Collabstream, which was an old SaaS that I started. I want to do it in 2022. Um, we'll see. That might end up being like a joint venture where I have to get like a bunch of people to, to build that one out and we'll see how that works out. But yeah, I want to do some more with roll your tweet first. I want to get WordPress integration. I also want to improve the onboarding experience a bit. Um, and we'll reevaluate in 60 days if I change the free tier at all. Like I might add features to free tier, but I have a couple of other ones that I'm thinking about, but I don't know if they're actually good ideas. You know, when you have an idea and you're like, this is a good idea. And then you sleep on it and wake up the next day and you're like, that was a terrible idea. Ever since I built Royal Tweet, I have about a hundred of those a day. <laughs> because I, because you spend a lot of time in that space, talking to other people, building SaaS products, you start to see pain points on all sorts of weird things that you were like, never thought would be a pain point. And yeah, like one of those is like, how do you get there, I have a list of about 200 sites where you can list your projects, like your SaaS. And like, you have to do it manually. Every single one of them is manual. And it's like, how could you speed up this process? And it's like, okay, maybe there's an easy way for like a submit, just submit it every, you pay $5 and someone submits all of these for you. Sounds as bad as like uploading your resume. Yeah. And typing in yeah. all the information again that you just exactly. uploaded in your resume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. It's exactly that times 10 because you're like you have to do like screenshots and video and like how much it costs and like are you going to offer something like a discount if someone uses this link like there's a whole like different world out there of like things that you can do and i had i think i submitted mine to 50 and then i was like and i'm done like and like and there's like this long lead time from when you submit to whether they approve and put it on their site and it's like months so by the time they submit, like everything that I've written probably doesn't apply anymore by the time you get there, unless you pay them like hundreds of dollars and then they'll move it up the list. 
I will say this. I think you put a whole lot more thought into roll your tweet upfront research, development time, marketing time, all that stuff more than I ever did for Murphy. So I think you're definitely on the right track for doing this right. And if you keep churning out ideas, they're just going to keep getting better. Yeah. And then that's the idea. And like, you know, I, I think it was a good learning experience for me. And like, I'm going to make a YouTube video on it, like what I've learned and like how that all worked out and like how much money have I made and how much money did I spend and what's the cost breakdown, all those things. Cause it's super interesting. Like I went with this idea that like, I'm going to build this product and it's going to cost me hundreds of dollars a month to run. And like, once you get to the brass tacks, it's like, no, it doesn't. And like your infrastructure only costs, it, uh, once you get to a certain point, it becomes pricey. But before that you can make thousands, if not tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars before you spend more than, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month at most. And I've seen that like in the indie hacker community, there's people making millions annually now from one app and it costs them like, you know, you know, I made a million in revenue and it cost me like $2,000 to run this. And you're like, wait, what, how does that make sense? Like, yeah, here's I'll, I'll take one of those. Please. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll take <laughs> that idea for $10, please. And like, yeah, it, it's very much like that. So yeah, I have a few more ideas. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm looking forward to your roll your SAS project. There you go. Just submit it to all these different there places. You go. Roll your SAS. I'm seeing like a, like a branding <laughs> opportunity here. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. I, I think that one would have to be like DoorDash. The origins of DoorDash was you submitted it online and then somebody would call the restaurant and then place your order via phone. Then they would text their, their drivers and they only had like three and it would, people would rotate the drivers. So it'd be like five people would rotate. Um, they would text the drivers and be like, Hey, I have a delivery at this address. And then they would update the website like, yep, it's on its way. I imagine that's how Royal SAS would be. If I built that project, it would just mechanical be mechanical Turk behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. It would be very much just me paying people pennies on the dollar to like fill what's out the, forms. What's the meme that AI is actually all people behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's how I imagine it would be. So once again. This has been James Perkins with his brand new SaaS product, Roll Your Tweet. You can go check it out at rollyourtweet.com. Use the free tier, subscribe if you want integrations with things like Dev2, Ashnode, Medium. James, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Really had a good time. Yeah, we appreciate it, definitely. And thanks to you all for tuning into Web Dev Weekly. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe in your podcast player. Check us out on Twitter. You can find our handles in the show notes. We also have a Discord community. The link is in the show notes. And one last link that's new this week is a link to ask questions. If you have a question for us, a topic you want us to discuss, a link to a form to ask us questions is now in the show notes. So give that a look. See you next week. Mm -hmm.